That song is actually a great segue into the sermon today because when you listen to the words of that song, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. The truth is, we have to be careful with the theology of that song because the reality is not everyone is going to heaven. That's the reality. And the reality is Jesus' mission is to get people to heaven. And it should be part of our mission as well. Today we're going to be looking in Mark chapter 2 at verses 13 through 22. And I'll just remind us that we're looking through these five separate incidents in Jesus' life with the religious leaders. He has conflict with them. And they're not necessarily in chronological order, but Mark grouped them together because of the similarity that there was a growing conflict and opposition to Jesus' mission. The first one we saw in Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 1 through 12, where Jesus healed a paralyzed man. Today we're going to be looking at Jesus eating with sinners, and the Pharisees didn't like that. Thirdly, we also look at confusion over fasting today. And then next week, we'll look at the Lord of the Sabbath and the healing on the Sabbath. Each one of those brought conflict with the religious leaders and Jesus. Beginning in verse 13, let's read through the account. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. As we look at this passage of Scripture today, uh, we're going to be focusing on three aims in the mission of Jesus. And these aims should be a part of our lives as well. If we are going to carry out the mission of Jesus as Bethesda Church, as a Christian, we need to make these aims a part of our life. The first aim is this. Jesus is looking for disciples to join his mission. 
Here we see at the outset in verse 13, Jesus goes beside a lake. That was a very common thing for rabbis to do. They would walk, and as they walked along the seashore or along the countryside, they would call disciples to join them. And these group band of disciples would follow them and listen to them teach. And so that's what Jesus was doing as he called these disciples. There was, uh, Galilee was also a great center for roads in the ancient world. Someone once said that Judea was on the way to nowhere, whereas Galilee was on the way to everywhere. Palestine was the land bridge between Europe and Africa, and all traffic had to flow through that on land. Galilee was ruled by Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great. So here we see Jesus, a large crowd comes to him, and he begins to teach them just like he taught before uh, in the synagogue. And just as he taught the people at Peter's house, he again teaches that's in his heart to do that. And then it says as in verse 14, as he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth, and he said, follow me. Levi's name um, is his, Levi is his given name. Matthew would be his, like a nickname, but it meant gift of God. Matthew in Hebrew means granted. In Latin, it carries the idea of receiving favor or heavenly grace. It was not uncommon in Galilee for people to have two names. They would have a Jewish name, and then they would also have a Galilean name. And so hence, Levi and Matthew. Whenever someone entered a new career, it was not uncommon for them to receive a new name. And so the first thing I want us to see here when Jesus says, follow me, is we see a call of grace. A call of grace. Why is this grace? It's grace because we need to remember who Levi was. He was a tax collector. Who were tax collectors? They were people who were hated by the Jews. They were despised. They were social outcasts. They were considered ceremonially unclean people. They were not people you eat with. They were not people you fellowship with. As a matter of fact, the tax collectors were also thrown and lumped in the same group as adulterers, murderers, and thieves. Lowlifes. Terrible people, bad characters. That's who they were. And what does Jesus say? He goes up to this tax collector's booth and he calls Matthew, this social outcast, this ceremonially unclean person, this person that is despised by society as well as his family because of his occupation, and he says, I want you to come into my inner circle. That's a call of grace. It's not the type of person that you would normally associate with. Because, see, not only did tax collectors were they despised, here's how badly they were despised. They were not allowed in the synagogue to worship. They were excommunicated from the synagogue. They were banned from being with God's people because they were unclean. And to be with them, you would be unclean. And yet Jesus here calls him. You see, they were hated because not only did they collect tax money, but they went above and beyond and they extorted money from the Jewish people. 
for the Roman government, for their own pockets. They lined their own pockets. And so Jews would come in. They wouldn't even know how much they were charged for taxes. They would have imports and exports of goods they would be taxed for. They'd be taxed for traveling on the road. And they didn't know how much they were going to have to pay. It depended on what kind of mood maybe the tax collector was in that day and said, well, here's what you owe. And so they were hated people because they ripped people off. They were cheats, extortioners. And yet this is the person that God called. The other thing I want us to see here is I want to remind us of a story of a woman she was from the Dock District in London. She came to a woman's meeting at the church, but she had been living with a Chinese man and had a baby whom she brought with her. She liked the meeting, and she came back to the women's meeting again and again and again. And then the vicar of the church had to approach her and say, you know what, um, we can't have you come back anymore. And she was puzzled, and she was like, why is that? Well, if you keep coming, he said, the other ladies are going to stop coming. And she couldn't believe it. She said, sir, I know I'm a sinner, but is there anywhere a sinner can go? Fortunately, the Salvation Army found that woman, and she was reclaimed for Christ. This would be... Matthew, the one who was an outcast, the one who would, in many churches, probably would not be welcome in the church. But yet Jesus said, follow me. We have that call of grace, too, because we don't deserve to be called. We don't deserve to be a disciple of Jesus. It is only because of his grace we are social outcasts. We are unclean people. God has called us by his grace to be his disciple. I find that amazing. He's called us. He's chosen us to be his disciple. The second thing I want us to see here is not only a call of grace, but it was a call to follow. A call to follow. Jesus said, follow me. This was an imperative. It was a command. It was a summons. It was a call for an immediate response to God's call in his life. Somebody said that following Jesus is not so much a movement of the feet as it is a movement of the heart. And I think that's true. You see, to follow Jesus is to imitate Jesus. The problem in our culture is we have words that the same people use, but they have different meanings. Let me give you an example. I talked to a guy this week in jail, and he said, I believe in Jesus. And I said, you do? I said, when is the last time you opened the scriptures? He's like, wow, it's been a long time. I said, then you don't believe. It's no more than lip service. Because you see, when you believe in Jesus, it changes your life you begin to become an imitator of Jesus and you want to follow what Jesus did. You want to do what Jesus does. That's what belief in Jesus means. It's not just coming to church and hearing a message and going out and living how you want to live the rest of your life because you said a prayer when you were 12 years old. Believing in Jesus is following Jesus 
behaving like the rabbi Jesus. That's what it means. And then he asked me a question. He said, well, why is my life so miserable then? Why is, Jesus, why is God making my life so miserable? I said, God's not making your life miserable. Jesus came to take away your misery. Your life is miserable because you are in control of your life and you haven't given your control over to the Lord. God came to take away your misery. He didn't want to make you miserable. He came to give us life and give it more abundantly. And this is what it means to follow Jesus. So we get rid of the old lifestyle. We break with the old way of living. If we went into Colossians chapter 3, we won't take the time to go there, but let me just mention some things that Colossians talks about in putting things off of our lives. If we're a follower of Jesus, we get rid of anger and rage. That's the old self. Do people see you as an angry person, full of rage? A follower of Jesus puts that out of his life. Malice, slander, filthy language, lying, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed. He say, yeah, that's the way you used to live. But when you answered the call to follow Jesus, you put those things out of your life. You grow more and more to be like Jesus. And it doesn't mean maybe you get rid of all those things all at once because sometimes we're creatures of habit, but God in his grace will not let you stay there. You grow. You grow. You become more like Jesus. And then you put on, you embrace this new self that it talks about later in Colossians 3, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forgiveness, and love. That's what it meant when God called Matthew, because here was the deal. Matthew was a tax collector, and do you know what Matthew had to give up to follow Jesus? His job. He couldn't continue to cheat people and do that. But when he called the fishermen, they could go back to fishing. That was okay. But when he called Matthew, he had to leave his position. And he'll never get it back. You know why? Because lots of people wanted his job. Say, they wanted to be a social outcast job? Well, they wanted the money. <laughs> That's what they were interested in. And so he's calling him to a whole new way of life. He may not be telling us to give up our jobs, but he is telling us to give up the old lifestyle and to embrace the new lifestyle that he wants us to live. Here's the second aim that Jesus' mission entails. Jesus' mission is to share the gospel with the lost. That is his mission. We see in Mark chapter 2 at the very beginning when he heals a paralytic and he tells him his sins are forgiven. He talks about sin and he talks about forgiveness. We see the same thing in verses 15 to 17 of chapter 2. Look what it says. While Jesus was having dinner, at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and the disciples. For there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Notice in those three verses, you see sinners and tax collectors mentioned three times. 
Why? Because Jesus' mission is to share the gospel with the lost. That's his mission. He says in Mark 10, 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's what he came to do. I'm going to skip over that. I'm going to go to the hospitality part. So Jesus is invited by Levi to his house. Levi obviously is a wealthy man. He's ripped people off. He's got a lot of money. Probably didn't sleep too good at night. Probably had a lot of insomnia for the way he treated people. But yet he invites Jesus to his house. And who are the guests? Sinners and tax collectors, why? That's the only people he can hang out with. <laughs> Wasn't allowed in the synagogue. So he brings Jesus over to meet his friends. That's what a disciple of Jesus will do. Invite people. Invite people. Why? Because we want to share the gospel with the lost. And so he's invited to this dinner now we have to understand the hospitality of the ancient culture. When you were invited to dinner, you were extending a pledge of loyalty and protection to that person. You, but eating with sinners was unacceptable in their culture. It was not acceptable. You know why? Because if there's sinners there, they probably didn't wash their hands according to the rules of the Jewish custom and therefore they're considered ceremonially unclean and if you fellowship with ceremonially unclean people then you become unclean so Jesus why are you eating with unclean people to contaminate yourself why are you doing that and see when you accept a dinner invitation it's a symbol of identification with those people it is meaning you desire friendship with those people. And notice I say those people. Table fellowship with sinners, outcasts, showed that Jesus had a heart of forgiveness, just like he showed earlier in the chapter. Let's talk about the Pharisees for a moment. The Pharisees are there. They wanted Israel to be a righteous nation by complying to the tradition of the elders or their Mosaic law. That's what they wanted. When he talks about sinners, there's two different types of people they're talking about here. It could be those who just didn't wash their hands to eat. They didn't do the ceremonies, and therefore they're considered sinners. That was one type. The other ones were those who were engaged in full-blown sin. And so if Jesus is eating with these people, he can't stay clean. The Pharisees are self-righteous people. They are the separated ones or holy ones. They had no need for true righteousness or repentance. The sinners were the real people who needed righteousness, not them. According to the first century historian Josephus, he said that at this time in the first century there were probably 6,000 uh, Pharisees, which only represented about 1% of the population, but they had an incredible influence. They had more influence than the Sadducees, the Essenes, the Herodians, the Zealots. And here's how one theologian describes them. 
the Pharisees. They wanted conformity to legal prescriptions that replaced the disposition of the heart, thus distorting the true intent of the law. They believing that the Torah, the five books of the Old Testament, first five books, they believed that the Torah was prescriptive for all of life. The Pharisees wove an increasingly intricate web of regulations around it whose purpose may have been to honor Torah, but whose effect was a confining and even crushing burden on human existence. They had over 600 commandments. And they were more concerned about all these commandments and rules and regulations than winning lost people to Jesus. Jesus has this banquet with them. And by the way, this banquet is a picture of the messianic banquet that Jesus wants to have in heaven. And he has sinners there. Because that's who he wants to invite to that banquet. C.T. Studd, the great missionary of Christ, he said these four lines. Some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. He said, I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. He was so concerned about reaching the lost for Christ. William Barclay mentions two barriers to sharing the gospel. One is contempt. When you have contempt toward people, like the Pharisees had toward the tax collectors and sinners, when you have contempt for people because they thought they were ignorant people, you're not interested in sharing the gospel with them. When you despise them. And the second one is fear. Fear. Fear of being contaminated by the sinner, that you might get infected. Here's what Jesus said in verse 17. On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Who is he talking about in that house? Everybody in the house. The Pharisees, the sinners the tax collectors. He was talking about everybody in the house. But you know what the problem was? The Pharisees didn't think they needed Jesus' righteousness because they had their own. The Archbishop of Constantinople of the 4th century said it like this, To blame Jesus for mingling with sinners would be like blaming a physician for stooping down over suffering and putting up with vile smells in order to heal the sick. When you go to the doctor, you want to see the doctor. You don't want him in the room next door. And so if the doctor says, well, I can't attend to you because you're sick, you might infect me. No, the purpose of the doctor is to heal. The purpose of Jesus being in their presence was that he could deliver them of their sin. Let me give us four practices that we can be involved in, that we should be a part of our life in reaching out to the lost. Number one, be aware of opportunities around you. The scripture says it like this, to redeem the time. 
Colossians 4 or 5 says to make the most of every opportunity. What opportunities has God placed around you? Sometimes it's the birth of a child in a family. They have a new child. You have an opportunity to connect with them, especially if it's their first child. Their life changes. You have an opportunity to connect with them and say, hey, what direction are you going with your child? What are you doing for their instruction spiritually? How are you going to guide them so they come to know God? Are you going to take them to Sunday school and church? And take that opportunity to challenge them, to invite them, to encourage them. Or maybe it's a marriage, a new marriage. Or maybe it's a crisis. We had recently in our neighboring community a crisis of a death. A suicide. It's a crisis. It's a tragedy. Who has connections with those families to minister to them, to take the gospel to them? That's what God has called us to do. We are, I hope you're praying for our upcoming elder meeting um, as we think about the future and ministry. One of the things that I hope to talk to the elders about, and I haven't even mentioned this to them yet, but it's been on my heart, and I think that it should be on the hearts of us as a church, is learning how to be first responders when there's crises. I think when there's a crisis, the first people that should respond should be the church, God's people. Because he has called us here to respond and reach out where we can bring the gospel to people who are hurting and who are lost and need Jesus. We need to be aware of the opportunities that God has placed around us and respond to them. Sometimes there's accidents or illnesses that we can respond to and have an impact with the gospel. Secondly is to be intentional be intentional. Jesus said in John 4, I must needs go through Samaria. Why? There was a woman at the well he wanted to connect with. That was the only reason he wanted to go through Samaria was to meet with that woman at the well who had a broken heart, a broken life, and needed hope. And Jesus said, I can change my route. Intentionality is so crucial. Invite someone to coffee. Someone you wouldn't ordinarily go out with. Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's a business person that you rub shoulders with. Have you tried to make a connection outside that normal circle to share the gospel? Jesus intentionally went to this dinner and blew the minds of the Pharisees. Absolutely blew their minds. Invite them into your home. Thirdly, be a friend of sinners. Who are your sinner friends? Who are my sinner friends? We probably have some. And how do we connect with them to share the gospel? That's what God has called us to do, to share the gospel with them. How can I connect with them? 
to share the gospel. Be a friend of sinners. Colossians says it this way, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Maybe you have extended family, former classmates, whatever the case might be. Be a friend of sinners. And fourthly, be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. Paul said, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. In Acts chapter 8, Philip was told by the Spirit of God to go near that chariot where the Ethiopian eunuch was, and he was sitting and he was reading, his, reading the Bible or the scroll in Isaiah. And he said to him, do you understand what you're reading? He said, no, how can I unless someone explains it to me? Philip gets up in the chariot with him and begins to explain the scriptures to him and leads him to Christ. That's what God wants us to do. There are opportunities we have, but we've got to be sensitive to the Spirit of God in our lives. And I know my own life, I'm sure there are times I, I miss it. I absolutely miss it because I'm not tuned in to the Spirit of God. God help us be tuned in to Him. I'm reminded of the song, Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Jesus, lover of my soul. Friends may fail me, foes assail me. He, my Savior, makes me whole. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Hallelujah, what a friend. Saving, helping, keeping, loving. He is with me to the end. We live in a broken world. Jesus can heal their brokenness. Do we believe that? Do we believe that? Would it be exciting to see a converted Muslim? Yeah, it would. Converted Buddhist? Would it be exciting to have a converted neighbor? Let's go to the third one. The third aim in Jesus' mission is to establish the new covenant. So what does he do? He brings in and the disciples, uh, or the Pharisees start questioning, what about the disciples? John's disciples are fasting. The Pharisees are fasting. What's up with your disciples? Why aren't they fasting? Well, we were really only told in the Old Testament that they were to fast on the Day of Atonement once a year. And then after the exile, there were a few other times that were initiated to fast. But Jesus is not condemning fasting as a rule. He's just saying if, if, if it's only about the external because they're paying attention who's fasting, who's not, all the externals, who's doing it that way, who's not doing it that way. He's saying, you know, there's a time to fast and there's a time to feast. <laughs> they were feasting and not fasting. And the reason they were feasting is because Jesus was with them and he tells them in verse 19, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? He's saying when it's a wedding type ceremony, Whenever there was a wedding in Jewish culture, they would celebrate for seven days. Or if it was a widowed person who was married again, three days. But they would feast. There would be food. There would be wine. There would be song. There would be dance. There would be music. It was the happiest week of their life. And he's saying, that's not the time to fast. In fact, the, the rabbis would not even have to teach that week. They could take a break. 
because it was a celebration. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, while I'm with you, you need to be celebrating. Because look what he says in verse 20. The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. What is he talking about here? It's the first time in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus says, I'm going to die. He doesn't say it outwardly, but that's what he's saying. I'm going to die. And when I'm taken out, when I'm removed, that's when you need to fast. That's when you need to seek the Lord. The time will come when he will be taken away, and then they will fast. And then he goes on and he gives two quick, short, parabolic type things here. He said, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. You're like, what in the world is that all about? Now he starts talking about patches of clothes and and then he talks about wine. He says, if you put the new patch of cloth on an old garment, it's going to pull away because it loses its elasticity. It loses the ability to expand. And he's saying the same thing about the wineskins. He says, when you pour new wine into old wineskins, those old wineskins become old and brittle, and they won't expand anymore. When that new wine begins to ferment, it will burst those wineskins. What does that have to do with all of this? Well, it has this to do. Jesus is saying your Judaistic practices are old and outdated and they don't work. I have come to give you my righteousness. You have tried to attain righteousness through all the Judaistic practices, through circumcision and the Sabbath and doing this and that and all those commandments. And he said, that is the old garment that is worn out. That is the old wineskin that is no longer useful. When you get a new wineskin, it has a new elasticity to it, and it becomes useful. And you can pour new wine in it. Jesus is saying, I'm the new garment you need to wear. You need to put off the old garment of the Mosaic law. The Mosaic law needs to be put off, and you put on the garment of righteousness that I'm bringing. You put in your body the new wine. I am the new wine. You put that into your body and not the old wine of Judaism. It's wore out. It's useless. So Jesus is bringing in a new covenant, a new way of life. The old system, he said, is not going to work. The old containers will burst if you try to put me into that old system. I don't fit the old system, he's saying. I'm bringing a new system. I'm bringing a new way of life. I'm bringing a new righteousness. I'm the new cloth. I'm the new wine. Judaism had become rigid and inflexible. And I wonder sometimes if we have become the same way in the church. You know, this is the way we've always done it. This is the way it should be. You know, we've got our rules. We've got our regulations. We've got... It may be that we need to think about a new way of how we reach people with the gospel. You know, we started the Celebrate Recovery ministry, and God is helping us to reach out to people 
that I don't think we would normally reach. And I'm thankful for that. And I trust that God will grow our hearts to reach the lost with the gospel. That is his mission. That should be our mission as well. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, let me just ask you, are you a follower of Jesus, striving to become more and more like him? Or do you just say, you know, I believe, I made a decision when I was a kid, and I asked Jesus into my heart, and he did, he came into my heart, the reality is, if you have done that, then you want to imitate Jesus in your life. You want to be with his people. You want to open his word. You want to become an imitator of Jesus. You want to follow what he says. You realize that he's called you by grace. He's called you by his grace, and he's called you to follow him. He's looking for disciples to join his mission. Are you involved in his mission? It may call for radical obedience. Matthew had to leave not only his old way of life, he had to leave his job. For most of us, God's not calling us to do that, but he is calling us to leave our old way of life. And then his second aim is that we share the gospel with the lost are you a friend of sinners who are your sinner friends how are you attempting to reach them I ask myself the same question how am I trying to reach them am I Am I putting forth enough effort to try to reach them? And then am I a friend of these sinners? Am I trying to reach out to them with intentionality? Am I paying attention to the opportunities that God has placed around me? Am I filled with the Spirit? Maybe you're here today and, I don't know, maybe you made a decision as a child. But did you really understand what you were doing? Do you have a genuine relationship with God? You are opening His Word. You are asking Him to guide you to be on the throne of your life, the throne of your heart. Or is your life really opposed to what he says in his word? And you know that you're not a follower of Jesus because you know there are things in your life that God is displeased with. Would you be willing to confess that to the Lord and change whatever God wants you to change?
You know, one thing about change, it's scary. Because we sometimes have to give up something that we've embraced for a long time. And God asks us to give it up. And then there's a fight. There's a fight to give it up. Whether it's a habit, an addiction, a hurt, an unforgiveness, yet God has called us to give it up. In this journey with him, if we're going to journey with Jesus, we need to have a heart for the lost. That we would see new faces begin to come through the doors. And that we are burdened for those new faces. We are burdened. We want to show the love of Christ to them. We want to reach out to them. If you do the same pattern you always do, you'll always get the same result. If you come in the same door of church and you go out the same door and you don't change your path to talk to someone, is that being a follower of Jesus? That's my question. Is that the follower that God needs and is looking for? If you haven't given your life to Christ, I would encourage you. God loves you. Jesus died for you. He doesn't want to make your life miserable. He wants your life to be full of joy. And he knows where that joy is found in a relationship with him. If we can help you, if we can pray with you, talk with you, share with you from God's word, we would be glad to do that. Let's be encouraged to reach out to the lost. Let's pray. We hope you've enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is BethesdaMB.org. That's Bethesda, M as in Mary, B as in boy, dot org. Or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron. Have a blessed day.